to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the gospel or the, the epistle, the first epistle of John in the New Testament. First John will be in First John chapter three this morning. First John chapter three. And, and, and of course, don't forget to pray about those things I mentioned earlier. Uh, those are important. Prayer is the way we speak to God. And I think I've shared this before. It was once asked. Uh, to Charles Spurgeon, what's more important, reading your Bible or, or praying? He's like, well, it's kind of like breathing in and breathing out. You tell me which one's more important. And uh, they are. They are very important. We must read uh, and we must uh, study, but, but we must also pray. We must speak uh, to our Savior. So again, you know, this month we've been studying through throughout the book of 1 John. Uh, I've been reading through it. I hope as many people as possible have been diving in and, and, and getting through that as much as possible every day. It's five short chapters. They're rich. And they're also repetitive, obviously, on purpose so we can have the, uh, the love of God resonate and, and permeate our lives. But I hope it's been as much a blessing to you as it has been to me. And if you, and maybe I'm the only one who thinks like this, but there are five Sundays in this month. So with God's guidance, I've, I've planned five, five different sermons this, this month. You know, there's two preached already and there's two more to go. And that makes this morning's message the middle sermon, right in the middle. And it's certainly appropriate, I think, because we're going to be looking at the love of God uh, this morning. Just a focus on the love of God. And, and like I said, when we first started um, preaching through the epistle of 1 John, it's hard to get anywhere without mentioning the love of God. It's all throughout the epistle. And for those of us who've been reading it, it's, it's very clear. I think maybe I didn't count how many times he used the word love, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was a hundred times. I mean, it's a lot of the word, a lot of usage of that word. And so that makes the middle sermon, the middle month this morning, about the love of God, which again, it's appropriate because the love of God should be in the middle of everything we do. It should be a part of who we are. Should be a part of who you are. In fact, that's the title of the day's message, The Love of God, there in uh, John chapter 3. And as we begin, I want to encourage us all to ponder this moment and uh, ponder for a moment this morning, rather, even, even right now and, and maybe during this whole sermon, the greatness of God's love. The greatness of of God's love, the immutability of God's love. And we can put a lot of adjectives in there uh, describing the love of God this morning. I mean, who's thankful for the love of God? Amen. I mean, praise God, what a, what a God that we serve. And look right there at John, 1 John chapter 3, in verse number 1. I love the way John begins. He says, Behold, and I don't know if he's trying to be excited there, but it makes me excited. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. But love now, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. And we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is 
pure. Let us, let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for the love of God. We thank you for your love manifested in so many ways, manifested in the Garden of Eden, Lord, manifested in creation and in, uh, in the incarnation and in the cross, Lord, and in every, every way, we're, everywhere we look, Lord, we see your love manifested in our lives, Lord, from creation uh, to even the continuation of our heart beating this morning. Lord, I believe it's all tied in somehow to your love to us. And Lord, and we thank you for that, Lord. And we ask you to bless us uh, this morning as we, as we study your word. Lord, encourage us in your word. Help us to be encouraged in you and uh, in your truths and the love that you've given us, Lord. And, and as Tyler mentioned already, Lord, uh, help us to, to ignore the world. Help us to uh, put the world out this morning. Help us to ignore uh, maybe the too much sleep or the not enough sleep or whatever it may, may have been, Lord, to come in here this morning to see you high and lifted up, Lord. Let's put it all out and focus with all of our faculties, Lord on the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see you high and lifted up. Let us hang on to every truth you have this morning. And Lord, stir us up. Stir us up for, for, for a life of living for you. And Lord, and we ask that you meet with us here this morning. Again, every morning, Lord, we just ask that you meet with us here right this very moment. Lord, we know that we can't get this moment back. Lord, help us to spend it for you. Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're going to talk about the love of God. And, and I couldn't help as I was going through this to be excited about the love of God in my life. I mean, think about when you're, when you're first dating your, your spouse or something like that. There's, there's excitement there. And the love that we have between my wife and I, it's nothing compared to the love that God has for us. It's just nothing. Nothing compares to the love of God. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. But one of the first things that jump out of me at this text is the preeminence of His love. Just getting right into the message this morning is the preeminence of His love. The love of God. It's, it's great. It's, there's nothing greater. You know, it's a true statement also that no one attribute, it's important to recognize this, there's no one attribute of God is greater than another attribute. I think the Bible teaches that very clear. Uh, God's love is not greater than His righteousness or His holiness, nor His mercy or forgiveness greater than His justice. But when it comes to love, there's nothing greater than God's love. True agape love has no equal. There is no equal. And it's not so much that His love is much greater than ours, which is true, nor is it so much that he is the author of our love, which is also true. But the fact of the matter is that God is love. He is love. It, he's not the creator of love. He is love. Love not only defines him, he himself is the definition of love. And because God is preeminent, God's love is also preeminent. The question that we have this morning is, is the love of God preeminent in our lives? Do we acknowledge the preeminence of God? Because if you think about it, and I was just, as I was putting this together, putting the final things uh, together on this message this morning, uh, for this morning, if there's one attribute that seems to be lacking among God's people today, I think it's love. Because love's a motivator. We lack love. The world lacks love. I mean, look at the news and look at all the things. Read just the history book of since history was written and there's wars and wars and wars. We lack love. And as we talked about last week, the lack of true divine biblical love creates spiritual blindness. 
even in believers. Look at 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 11. Just a, a reminder. It says, He that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. And chapter 4 of this epistle, verse 20, the Bible says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. In other words, if we take away something that's very simple, a very simple phrase, hatred blinds and love enables. Hatred blinds the believer, but love enables the believer. And I realize that many of us, maybe all of us in this room, would probably never admit to succumbing to hatred. We would probably never say, I hate something, or admit to having or harboring hatred. But I must tell you very clearly this morning that discontentment and bitterness are going down the same road. They lead to hatred. And the more we go down that road, the more spiritually short-sighted we will be. And when we stumble, we won't even know that we're stumbling because we're in darkness. Be just because of a little discontent. I mean, think about it. When you're angry, do you think straight? Probably not. I mean, you're, you're raging. I mean, hopefully we've not raged in a long time, the people that are in here this morning. But it, it just doesn't work. Uh, we, we make ridiculous decisions when we're angry. That emotion is blinding us to the truth. And we see that very clearly in anger. And it's easier for us to identify that in anger. But what about the other ones of discontentment and, and bitterness and all those things that are the result of a lack of love lead to spiritual blindness? In fact, the Bible teaches in 2 Peter that not only will we stumble without the love of God, and this one I think is even, even more powerful, but we will lead others. As believers, we will lead others down that same road. Remember 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9? Uh, remember we went through that a couple, a couple weeks ago, and Peter, after he listed a number of attributes of God, culminated with the love of God, he wrote in verse 8, He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. And he forgot his end result of that believer. This is shocking to me. The, it's right there in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. The end result of somebody who forgets uh, the love of God, who doesn't have those things in his life, he, for, he, has, uh, he forgot that he was purged from his old sins. I mean, what does that mean in our lingo? He forgot the cross. How can a Christian forget the cross? But Peter says it happens even to believers. You see, the preeminence of the love of God is desperately needed in our lives. And I don't know what that noise is out there, but that's, I hope we can just go along with the points here. The preeminence of the love of God is desperately needed in our lives. It's needed in our homes. It's needed in our communities. It's needed in our relationships. It's needed in our nations. It's needed even in our churches. The preeminence of the love of God. You know, Paul wrote that the love of God constrained him. It constrained him. Now, when we read that constrained him, it sounds kind of restrictive. But in Paul's mind, in that context here, he means that the love of God held him together for the cause of Christ. It held him together for the cause of Christ. God's love for Paul was a motivator. It was a force that controlled, compelled, and even propelled him to live a victorious life. The love of God. Have you experienced that love this morning? Have you experienced the love of God personally? Now, I think most of us have. And if you have, think about this question. Is the love of God abundantly evident in your life? 
is it evident in your life? Now, there's two, there's two ways for a believer to respond to that. Of course, the love of God is evident in my life. I'm a Christian, and, and I don't do this, and I don't do that. So, of course, the love is evident in my life. But there's another reaction that we can say, is it? Is it really here, or is it just in the motions? Is it at the core of us? Is the love of God preeminent in your life? I mean, we could stop right here and go home and just think of that question. Is the love of God preeminent in your life? Or are we filled with discontentment? Are we filled with bitterness over something that's not going the way we think it should go? Are you simply disgruntled about life and feel like the whole world is against you sometimes? Are you surrounded by tension? I mean, dissatisfaction in, in your life. For an American, are you bitter about how the elections are going? I mean, that's kind of it's kind of dis, dis, uh, discouraging. Uh, and, and, and all of us, do we lay awake at night sometimes thinking of how bad it is right now and how good it used to be? The, the good old days we talk about, you know, that, you know, where is God now and how is he not here now? And it was so much better then. Why can't I be in the 80s or why can't I be in the 50s or, or even back in the 1800s at the Great Awakening and the revivals and all these things? Why can't I live in a time where people actually loved God? Why do I have to live now? Are we disgruntled about those things? And friends, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned about things, but these kind of reactions are not characteristics of God's love. The love of God enables us to rise above those circumstances. Every circumstance. The love of God can conquer every negative thought and every negative emotion in our life. Choose to make the love of God preeminent in your life. It doesn't happen by mistake. You don't, you don't just fall in love as the world talks about today. There is a choice involved. You choose to love your, your spouse. Choose to love God. Choose to love Him all the way. And when we do that, again, it conquers all the things in this world. Romans 8, 37, Paul wrote that we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. And remember one more thing here, or a couple of things. Love is not ignorant to the law. That's, 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 that's important to understand, I think, even today. The love is, is not ignorant towards the law, nor does it overlook sin. Love is made perfect in obedience. And it recognizes sin and then forgives that sin. Remember Romans 5.8, that God commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, think about that. This means He chose to love us when we were His enemies. He chose to love us when we hated Him. And at the same time, He did not ignore our sin. He paid for our sin on that cross. 1 John 4.10 says, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So just as a way of a continued introduction, if this kind of love dwells in us, if it dwells in you right this very moment, if this is the love that is preeminent in your life, what in the world can remove the joy that comes along with that love? What, in the, what, what can the world have anything to do with that? Or how could it change anything? First John 1 John 1.4 says, These things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. What is there to be bitter about today? For those who have the love of God. I mean, seriously. Bitterness. Don't be bitter, be better. Bitterness is a, is a foothold for the devil. Don't be dissatisfied. It doesn't matter what this world throws at us or who opposes us. The future is ours. Because of Christ. 
doesn't matter where Germany is headed. It doesn't matter where America is headed. It doesn't matter where this community is headed. The church will prevail. And in the grand scheme of things, there is no shadow of darkness on our eternal life in God. None. You know, there's an American missionary by the name of Adoniram Judson. Y'all probably knew him. He went to Burma for a number of years, started in India, a number of places like that. Uh, but he got caught in a, in a brutal war between India and England. And during that war, because of his, he was American, he spoke English and they associated him with that, and he preached the gospel. He spent 21 horrible months in a Burmese prison. A horrible prison. I mean, you can read it out, but it was, you know, in the army we have, uh, what's that, um, that training you go, um, seer, seer school. It's nothing on this. I mean, this is, you study it out, it is, it is craziness. Anyway, towards the end of that, he was asked, how's your future now? 21 months and he had no 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 uh, no planning of getting out that he knew of and he said the future is as bright as the promises of God with shackles on his hand and not eating very much and just at 34 years old he went in there he came out looking much older 21 months the future is as bright as the promises of God that's the abundant love of God that we need and it should be so evident in our lives that it just overflows our cup runs over. What manner of love has God given to you? How deep is the Father's love to you? Is it preeminent in your life? Is it your motivator? Does it compel you and propel you? Don't choose to hate. Choose to love God. You know, when we choose to love God, it just cancels out all the hatred for everybody else. Because you can't love God and hate somebody else. It's just not possible. The preeminence of love the preeminence of God's love. And then look again at chapter 3 again. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not. So not only do we have the preeminence of His love, we have the purpose of His love. Why, did God, why does this text tell us, why did God bestow His great love upon us? What's the purpose? So that we can be called the sons of God, so that we can be the children of God. You know, that phrase, sons of God, is connected to our inheritance with Christ. Not only position, but inheritance. Notice the relationship. There's only, there's only one relationship there. It's between Father and the Son in that verse there. And when we, become, when we become a part of the family of God, I think it's important for us to know that uh, here in other places, he, call, he refers to us sons of God. And it's not so much of, a, of an emphasis here in this passage, but it is in other passages. But it's important that we are the sons of God. Because we are not just nephews and nieces of a God. And he's, some, he's just our great uncle, or, and we're some distant relative when we get to heaven. He's just at the top of the family tree, and we just happen to be a part of it. We're not even just brothers and sisters who are adopted in that family some 2,000 years later after many other people. Right? We are all on the, the same playing field. We are all as firstborn sons in the family of God. And John chapter 17, in John's gospel record, we learn that God's love for us individually is equal to his love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's, a, that's an eye-opener. So there are no second-rate family members in the family of God. None. None whatsoever. Not in heaven, not on earth. We are loved as if we were the only child. And 
according to this verse, that's the purpose of his love. He wants you. He wants us. He wants us all to be the children of God. That's why he bestowed his love upon us in the first place. Friends, that's why we're here, because of the love of God. You were created to be in the family of God. Every person was created to be in the family of God. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve and every other person, we are created to be in the family of God. And even as John continues here, he begins the next verse with a family word. Beloved. Beloved. He says, behold first, and then he says, beloved. God bestowed his love so that we could be the beloved. You know, all through John's record, who did he refer to as the beloved? Himself. He was the, the apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And now he refers to us. He, he kind of brings us into that group, that relationship that he has with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, but because this is, also a, this is a family word, it is also a reminder that John is writing to believers. To believers, those who are in the family of God. He says, beloved, now are we the sons of God. And John's very first usage of the phrase, the sons of God, is not here in the epistle, of course. It's back in the gospel according to John. If you, want, if you don't mind, turn there real quick. The gospel according to John. We'll probably go back to John quite often throughout this month. But I want you to look at chapter 1. And no surprise to any student of Scripture, you'll see right down at verse number 12. John writes, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. As many as received him, that's Jesus, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. That word translated as power has to do with the power of authority, not the power of might, not the power of muscle. But it's like, who did God authorize to become the sons of God? Verse 12 tells us that as many as received him, he authorized to become the sons of God and to them that believed on his name. So God authorized the many. He gave power to the many who believe on his name and received him as their savior to become the sons of God. So let's put that in chronological order here. We must first believe the son of God. Then we receive the son of God and then we become a son of God. Believing, receiving, becoming. You know, we can believe our entire life that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a good start, but it's not enough. The devils believe, James says, and they tremble. Why do they tremble if they believe? Because they believe and they do not receive. So we can believe our entire life that Jesus is the Son of God, but unless we personally receive Him as our Savior, we will not become a child of God. Make no mistake, salvation is all God, but you and I must believe and receive before we become. And back in our text in 1 John, notice that there are three phases to us becoming a son of God. Look at verse 2 again. It says, Beloved, now are we the son of God, sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Three different phases to becoming the Son of God. Three different aspects of being a member in the family of God. Number one, we see a change in our position. A change in our position. Now are we the sons of God. The only way John could write the word now 
in reference to our relationship with God is if we were previously born into the family of God. Now are we the sons of God. And the only way, again, for us to be born in, into the family of God is to believe, receive, and become. 1 John chapter 5, look at verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So for only way for him to write now are we the sons of God, we must be born into the family of God. And we are born by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is our takeaway? We are children of God now. That's in the original, mind you. I mean, I don't really go there a whole lot, but that's in the original. Now. We are children of God now. Salvation is not some future possession. It's not something we're reaching for. It is a present possession. Now are we the sons of God. Our relationship with God is not something a Christian hopes for. There are some things we hope for, but our relationship with God is not one of them. Our salvation is something we already have. And if you are a Christian, you know that's the case. You have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. You know that fellowship with the Father. You have it right now. It's not something in the future. It's a change in position right now. And then notice also there's a change in our practice. A change in our practice. John writes, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. In other words, we are not yet who we will be, but we are being conformed into who we will be. We are being conformed into the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29 tells us these things. We are predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 states that we are changed into the same image from glory to glory. Uh, if I understand that passage right in 2 Corinthians, it's like looking uh, into the Bible as if it were a mirror or looking into Christ as if he were a mirror. And throughout our lives, as we study the Word of God, as we draw close to the Word of God, we can see the change in our own life. Glory to glory to glory as we are being conformed and transformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is sanctification. There is a change in our practice. A change in our practice. I don't know what this thing's going here. And we're going to talk more about that here in a moment. But what's clear in the text here is that we are not who we used to be because there is a change in our position. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. And then lastly, uh, in this verse here, we see that there is a change in our person. So there's a change in our position. There's a change in our practice. And then there's a change in our person. He says, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And I think this is an outstanding, remarkable truth that is overlooked by almost every Christian. We shall be like him. What in the world does that mean? We shall be like him. Our whole person, all of us, all of us, is going to be redeemed. All of us. When we first believe, our position in Christ changes as we are born into the family of God. We are born as a new creature in Christ. And as we live this life and our practice begins to reflect our position in Christ, and, it is, and it, that will be complete when we see God, and our body, our mind, and our spirit will be washed permanently, permanently, forever separated from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin. We shall be like him. And all of this is possible because of the love of God. 
all of this is possible because of the manner of love that God bestowed upon us. You know, in all of eternity, you can read every fairy tale book, you can read every story, you can watch every Hollywood movie there is, and there's no greater rags of riches story than us finding Christ, than us finding the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the love of God. There's no better concept, no sweeter story, no greater love than what is found in Jesus Christ. It's not just the greatest story ever told. It's the greatest love story ever told. John uh, wrote in John 15, 13, Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That is certainly a true statement. But think about the God who became a man so that he could lay down his life for those who were not yet his friends. What manner of love is that? That's divine love. That's agape love. This is God. And the purpose of His love for you and the purpose of His love for me is that we should be called the sons of God. God's love for the world made the cross mandatory. You know, you can put the entirety of the gospel under one theme. All of it. All of it. The incarnation, the passion of Christ, the beatings, the stripes, the crown of thorns, the mockings, the spear in the side, the nails in his hands, the gasping for air, the water and the blood, the death of Jesus Christ, the victorious resurrection of Christ. You can put it all under one category at the top, the love of God, the love of God. And all of that and more was done, all of that, so that we could be called the sons of God. That's the purpose of God's love. And you will not find a greater love. If you are not a child of God today, experience Him today. Run to Jesus. You will not find a better, a better love, a higher love. You will not find a more unconditional love. Not even close. Run to Him. And if you are a child of God this morning, fall in love with Him all over again. Run to your first love. Don't, don't be like the church in the book of Revelation. Don't forsake your first love. Hold on to that first love. Be stirred up this morning. Live and give your all for the greatest love of your life. If in fact that He is, Jesus Christ. And then notice very quickly verse number 3. Verse number 3 says, Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. Even as he is pure, the purpose of God's love originated with himself. He is the author of all things good. But on the other side of that, there is an expected practice for those who have experienced his love. And we're going to call that the practice of his love. The hope here in verse number three, look at verse number three. And every man that hath this hope, this hope, what hope is he talking about? That we shall be like him. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In other words, we're going to all stand before God one day. But John's intention here is not to strike fear in the hearts of believers, but to comfort us. Because we're going to see Jesus and we're going to be like him. So the motivation for living a pure life here is hope. A pure life that reflects the love of God. The motivation is hope here. Hope that we know that we will stand before God and we shall be like Him. And just, just so we're clear, biblical hope is more than just a hope. More than just what we understand to be hope. It's not, I hope I have a good day. A, a biblical hope is a concrete expectation of something promised. Concrete. 
It is confidence in a sure thing. It's like planning your trip tomorrow and saying, I will leave when the sun comes up. I hope the sun comes up. Now we all believe the sun's going to come up. We have a promise from God that the sun's going to come up. That's a biblical hope. And John's point is that we have confidence in the promises of God if we truly believe that because of the love bestowed upon us from the Father, we are a born-again believing child of the King, then our lives should reflect the love that we say that's in us. Our practice should reflect our position. John gives us us an example of this in verse 17. In verse 17 of the same chapter, he said, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? And verse 18 says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Put some actions to your love. Now this verse, these verses here are pretty clear and easy to understand, I think. But let me just say this. I hope... As we kind of wind down here this morning, I hope that I, that God has used me this morning to remind you and maybe even rekindle the love of God of you in this morning, of you that dwells in you. And if that is at least partly true, if, if you just had at least one passing thought about how great is God's love for me. I want to also remind you that the greatest need any person has is to experience the love of God. And how does the love of God dwell in us when we shut up our bowels of compassion from the world's greatest need? You know, the practice of God's love was shown by giving His Son to the world. The practice of God's love in us should be no different giving His Son to the world. And as I was putting this together, I was personally challenged to live a better life, to better live out the love of God in my life, to not be stirred with other emotions, but to be focused on the love of God. I fully recognize that my redeemed and renewed life is the purpose of His love. For me to walk right and to live right and to do things that honor Him. That's why He loves me. He bestowed His love upon me so that I can be a child of God. Now think about that. Are we to be a child of God that walks contrary to His Father? I don't think so. We're supposed to live for our Father. So I will therefore strive to make the love of God preeminent in every aspect of my life. Who will go with me? Who will go with me? Let's pray.